Peer Review is a series of podcasts designed to shed light on the extraordinary breadth and diversity of talent that sit in the House of Lords. The House of Lords often gets a bad rap because it is thought to be a house of cronies and it is an unelected house. But I hope through these interviews you will see that there is this extraordinary talent, there is a great knowledge and experience, and with that I leave you to draw your own conclusions. My guest today is the extraordinary Paralympic athlete, amongst other things, Tanny Gray-Thompson of Eaglescliff Stockton-on-Tees. Now, there might have been a few eyebrows raised when you chose a Durham title as opposed to a Welsh title. Yes. So what happened was uh, when I went to sign all my forms to get my title, uh, Gartra King's Arms sort of was quite an interesting chap. And I said to him I wanted a Welsh title and I'm from Cardiff. And he said, oh, you can't have, you can't have a city. That's for a duke. Where do you live? <laughs> uh, and I told him and he said, that's where you're from. So I didn't know at the time that I probably could have argued a bit more for a different title. And of course, you should really be a duchess. In my eyes, you're a duchess. <laughs> I was asked in 21 when I was standing for Parliament who were the five women I'd like to have dinner with, and Tanny Gray was one of the five. Queen Mother was another. Madonna, I remember that oh, one. Yep. But um, now I have the huge pleasure of you sitting with me. And of course, you're so bemedalled. Not only did you win 11 golds, four silver and one bronze, which you must have been a bit disappointed by. I would, I'm very disappointed you only got one bronze. But you got an MBE, an OBE, and were made the dame of the British Empire. But, Tanny Gray, you, you were born, as you said earlier, in Cardiff, and you were born with spina bifida, which is, which is a birth uh, illness, isn't it? Yeah. So I'm missing some of the vertebra at the back of my spine, so my spinal cord exposed. I could walk a little bit when I was young, but then as I grew, my spine collapsed, and... So my own vertebra severed my spinal cord. and But I don't remember anything about it. Um, I remember walking badly and I remember having my first wheelchair. Uh, I didn't miss a day of school. There wasn't any pain. It probably happened over about three years. But because it happened so gradually, I adapted to each thing that I couldn't do as I went along. So it, it wasn't a big deal in my life. And you were first in a wheelchair about six or seven? Yeah, about that. I, I don't remember. I remember having callipers and crutches and... My father, who was an architect, kind of looked at the world and said, look, you're not going to survive trying to walk because I could only walk very, very slowly. Couldn't carry anything, couldn't do anything. So he was the one that said, you have to have a chair. And a lot of people told him he was an idiot. But for me, that was life changing because I could suddenly do all the things that I wanted to do. And so for me, it was this huge sense of freedom. Now, not everyone who becomes a wheelchair user feels the same as I do, but uh, it, it was amazing. So I could play sport. Um, you know, I could get to school on my own. There's all these things that I could do. But how, could, how, how quickly could you adapt to playing sport? So uh, I, I learned to swim. Um, once I became paralysed, I went horse riding. Um, I actually played a lot of sports quite badly. Um, wheelchair racing was the only one I was eventually You're good quite at. quite good at, I think. I was okay in the end. <laughs> but not as a junior, as, as a sort of 12, 13-year-old. I don't think anyone looked at me and thought I had talent. I had bags of enthusiasm. Um but it was just the fact I could get around on my own that I didn't have to wait for somebody to help me. But in the early 70s, it must have been very hard being in a wheelchair. I mean, there weren't the wheelchair facilities which you've been at the vanguard of achieving. Not very much at all. There were no accessible toilets, no drop curbs, not many lifts. Um, and also the sort of the prejudice that 
I think I was about five when the first person stopped me in the street and asked me why my parents hadn't aborted me. So, you know, some of that, you know. That's a shocking question, isn't it? Yeah, and I had had people used to pull their kids out of my way saying, don't get too close to her, you might catch it. And But my parents were amazing in that they were very level-headed. And every time that happened, they kind of would talk through with me and they were always very calm with me. And my mum was also quite stroppy, so she just used to call them all idiots. So it, it, it wasn't my family doing that to me, it was other people. But there's got to be something special inside you, apart from your enthusiasm, and your, there must be something really burning inside you. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that desire to win, it was, it was the most important thing in my life for a very long time. And I learned at quite a young age that you've got to train hard, you've got to train smart. And it's hard to explain it, but I, I was driven. So you went to Loughborough College at that point. University. At Loughborough, <laughs> sorry, Loughborough University. Probably was college then. No. Was it university? Oh, so, so the reason I'm laughing is when I met Ian, the first time I was 17, he was 21. Ian's your husband. Yes, yeah. he was doing his PhD at Manchester. And the first thing he said to me was, I hear you're going to Loughborough College. Right. And I very indignantly went, it's a university. Well, of course it's a university. <laughs> I wasn't meaning it into, I mean, it's fantastic sporting amongst other things. But sport was a huge premium. Were you a sort of fully paid up athlete at that point? Yeah, I, I went to... You went to Loughborough went, for athletics. I went there because Seb went there, Seb Co. And how did you get to know Seb? He's years older than you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, I first, actually, I first met him when I was at university. And um, and I watched him on TV. And then we are at Commonwealth Games together. And there was a, a runner called Johnny Gray. Well, you were both um, performing the Commonwealth Games. Yeah. It, really? I, it was, I was sort of a bit more of the start of my career. He was sort of towards the end. And... He's my age, Seb. It appeared on CFAX that Gray breaks 800 metres world record and his dad had seen it and he thought it was an American runner called Johnny Gray. And then when he sort of went onto the page and realised it was me that broke in it, I think huge relief to to Peter Coe. But uh, Seb came up to me and said, oh, you nearly gave my dad a heart attack. That's the Seb won't remember it. That's the first time we actually spoke. But I'd watched him for years on TV Mm. and, you know, had a big impact. Amazing guy and really good. Look, so eighty-eight Seoul beckons. Uh, and what was the the Paralympic Games like then? I mean, it must have been sort of beginners. There wasn't a lot of coverage of the games, and it was the first time since nineteen sixty where the games were held in the same city as the Olympics. We didn't really know what to expect, and. Um, had you been travelling a lot before then? Yeah, a reasonable amount. So, so there was no problem getting on planes and going... I've been travelling sort of from sort of 16, 17. Um, and it was interesting. So the, the crowd didn't really know what to expect from the Games. So basically the government told people to come and watch us do sports. So the same people were sat in the same seats every day, but they supported a different country every day. Uh, and it was kind of fascinating. So, you know, there, there was a bit of coverage... I mean, in terms of the com- competition, it was pretty strong. It was just nobody knew about it. Um, and then after that was the first time that there was ever really any coverage on TV. Big change came for us in 92 um, with Helen Rollison. Mm. And, and she really put the Paralympics on the map. Yeah, and you later got the Helen Rollison Lifetime Achievement Award. It's a nice full circle, wasn't it? Yeah, and she was amazing because she'd she'd experienced quite a lot of discrimination herself. So when she'd been given the job of presenting grandstand. Um, it was front page news. You know, how dare the BBC allow a woman to present the flagship programme that is Grandstand? 
you know, what will she know about sport? And, um, you know, she was an incredible presenter, but also she was very keen to show Paralympic sport as sport and you just happen to be disabled. So she really fought a lot of battles within the BBC to, to get us on air. Mm, amazing. You you competed in several of the sprint classes. Which, which was your favourite, 100, 200, 400? I hated the hundred. It was too short. Uh, you I, won a few though, so then I, I did. That um, <laughs> it was always my weakest event. The hundred. My strongest event would probably be the four and eight hundred. And how do you train differently for the? I mean, you imagine that a hundred is totally different from an eight hundred. Eight hundred more endurance. And so we don't train like runners at all. We train like cyclists. So you know, for us, there's not that much difference between the hundred and the eight hundred. Partly because you're going pretty quick. So there's a bigger difference training for marathons, but because you're overcoming momentum, not gravity. Uh, and, and it's like cycling, you know, it's a bit like Mark Cavendish can do a whole range of distances and has race track and then race road. We're, we're very similar to cycling as a sport. Mm. You carried on relentlessly when beating all that came in front of you until I think you hung up your, well, it's not your boots, but your, <laughs> your, your bicycle wheels at 2007. Is that right? Yeah, um, so I knew... After, I mean, that's a hell of a long time. That's 15 years. Yeah, I mean, it was. And, I mean, I think I, I got to Athens, did okay there, had a bit of a mixed games, knew I didn't want to do Beijing but wasn't ready to stop. And it was Dave Moorcroft who said to me when I was quite a young athlete, be really sure that you retire because you can't go back. So I did another two years. And t- I remember the 2006 season. I hated every bit of it. I just wanted to stop. But I'd said that I'd complete the season and then I did one more race in 2007. So I retired in Manchester. And 2004 was your last Olympics, was it? Yeah, yeah. it was. Yeah. And, and the difference between 2004 and 88 in terms of the audience and the crowds and things like that, they weren't paying them to come and see you. No, I mean, people were, were paying to come and see us. And, you know, athletes were starting to be household names and... You know, there was amazing TV coverage and it was just on a whole nother level. And and I think each game sort of developed and moved things forward. And the, the big, you know, raising of the bar was London Games, uh, which I worked on. And I mean, that was just incredible. Yeah, we'll come to that in a minute, if, if we may. How do you keep your fitness levels, though, after that point as a sort of athlete? Uh, I mean, clearly you still have to get you, you were wheelchair bound, so you, you you still run around. But I saw you had a little bit electric um, <laughs> uh, machine in front of you to help you on your way. Yeah, so um, I've got my electric adaptation. I use that to get around London because it's a bit quicker than relying on public transport. But um, it's hard, you know. I had when I stopped. I had, I had visions of you coming here, you know, full. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I mean, I I still occasionally get in my racing chair. It's really miserable though because it's really slow and hard. So it's not a lot of fun. So uh, I've got a, a, a hand bike, which I propel myself. I go to the gym. I do lots of other things. Um, but but staying fit and healthy is, is quite important. Yeah, and it must be difficult given all the other things that you do rather than just being at it full time. So f- fast forward as you're about to, before I really interrupt you, to um, the London Olympics. But it's just right from the beginning when Seb became chair of the bid, he just said look and feel of the game is going to be the same. That's it. You know, I remember Tessa Jowell, who'd been you know, instrumental in, in getting the UK to bid. We were in Singapore and the night before uh, the final bid on stage, she said to me, I want to stand on stage tomorrow and say the 60 days of the games. And everyone's told me I can't, but you'll agree with me, won't you? And I had to say to Tessa, 
we can't do that because at that point we were only bidding for the Olympics and the Paralympics was a separate negotiation. And I said, you can't do anything that will detract the IOC. from. Well, when you say it's a separate negotiation, I mean, they were going to be together, presumably. They were, but you, you had to negotiate afterwards with the IOC and the IPC right. to, to have them in the same So since London, you have, you have to put on both games. Yeah. So, you know, back in... So London, it was, you know, you were negotiating two things. I mean, the, your games could have been a totally different place, you're saying. Could, could have been. I mean, unlikely. But Sydney, which was the 2000 games, in, in the early couple of years, the organising committee in Sydney didn't really want the Paralympics. And then they recognised that it was useful. So, you know, I had to say to Tessa, you've just got to talk about the Olympics because we're bidding to the IOC. We're not bidding for an Olympics, uh, Paralympics. So, no, she she was amazing. And there were just incredible people involved. But, you know, then we had to... And even Boris was Boris, yeah, key figure. Lots of people. You know, And there seemed to be great harmony. You know, everyone's respecting each other's. And there was a sort of community of endeavour. Yeah, and you know, then Hugh Robertson sort of came in as sports minister, um, and he was incredibly respectful of people who'd gone before, as they were of him. Uh, you know, and I, I think by the point that we're making the games happen, everyone recognised how good it was for the country. And then during games time, it was amazing. You know, people were chatting to each other on the tube, and it, oh, sort amazing, of, yeah. it disappeared fairly soon after. But you know, the games makers, the volunteers, they were incredible. You still see people around. Well, particularly so, the army came in had at the last minute. So I remember having a journalist be really grumpy with me about the army, saying, oh, well, it's all... I said, but you've got a team of people who understand risk and threat and security. Why wouldn't you want them? And and for the British public, it was a chance to actually go up to them and just say thank you. Yeah. You know, no party politics. Just say, you know, thank you for what you've done. So that that was... Except there was, there was one day we did have a little bit of an issue. Um, so... My daughter, who was 10, we'd been in the, in the park and she'd seen this mascot, which was about, about three foot high, and she wanted it. And it was 250 pounds. And it's like, you must be joking. We're not having another teddy bear, you know. And we'd gone outside the park <laughs> and there was a sort of the same on sale for 25 pounds. So I bought it for her. And we were going back in the afternoon and one of the young lads said to her, do you think Mandeville's smuggling any drugs? And Karis was like, very serious. No, no, no. And then this poor young, he was only early 20s. He said, we might have to cut Mandeville's stomach open. And hence my child burst into hysterical tears. I should have reacted better if he'd suggested cutting my stomach open. And this poor lad was mortified and his <laughs> mates were there going, you haven't got kids, have you? So yeah, every day I was in and out, he'd, he'd come to me and apologise. and go, I'm so sorry for upsetting your <laughs> child. But anyway, Karis is over it now. She's fine. But on the subject of drugs, you, you were then involved in 2012 in the investigation uh, of Lance Armstrong. Mm. That must have been extraordinary. So I, I got asked to join the independent inquiry. And um, for those that don't know about Lance Armstrong, which there can't be many, I mean, he mm. was the world's greatest cyclist at the time and but was a drug cheat. And and probably one of the best drugs cheats. If you, you know, what he masterminded in terms of the microdosing was absolutely incredible. I mean, completely illegal, but... um. Yeah, I mean, that was a bizarre thing to sit on. I, I remember clearing out my office expecting, um, you know, boxes and boxes of redacted paperwork from the International Federation and we got nothing. And so as we're going through, we're trying to investigate, you know, it was a, it came out through United States uh, uh, anti-doping, what had happened. 
So in the end, we were slightly redundant in terms of what we were trying to do. But, you know, actually, you know, calling time on, on those people are really important because the, the sport rested on his shoulders. And, yeah. you know, he it, it's amazing how the sport sort of keeps going when you have these big crises. Yeah. I mean, you must have encountered drug cheats in, 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 in your sport. Yeah, it happens, you know, across all sports in terms of what people are are willing to do. And, you know, we we have really good sort of policies in this country. You know, I think we take it incredibly seriously. It it still it still happens. But um, you know, in sport you need rules. Um it's quite interesting. There's a, a chap in Australia who's wants to run an event which is for um anyone who's taken drugs which um, that's getting quite a lot of media attention at the moment. I think that's going to be, a, you know, quite a big challenge because of taking drugs. Um, yeah, there might be a performance benefit, but there's also massive health detriment. So, you know, this, these things come up every and now and again. So, you know, I think the rules in sport are really important. Mm. So you hung up your boots in 2007 been keeping yourself reasonably fit since. Yep. <laughs> um, and what, what's what's been... You know, given that you've had this incredible focus in your life up to that point, you know, and discipline, what's been the things that have really got your juices flowing since? So a lot of the things I do now is about uh, public transport, mm. you know, accessibility on trains. I mean, that for me goes back to my early 20s, um, you know, being in the Lords and having the chance to be there. And that you know, gives you a platform for raising these issues. In, in lots of different ways. So I tend to think if you, you write to a head of a train company on House Lords paper, I kind of have to reply. Um, I also use social media quite a lot for it. Um, but I think one of the things in the Lords is that there's lots of different levers that you can pull. So whether it's asking a question in the chamber or a question for a written answer or tabling a debate or or just using that platform to to get to the organisations to say, I think you can do better. It's actually, there's not a lot of difference between sport and politics in terms of, you know, you've got to be quite creative. And as for me, because I'm a, a crossbencher, I don't have that party support and backup. You you have to be quite creative in finding ways to influence change. So, um, and where, where do you research? Um, so I'm connected into, you know, lots of different organizations, different groups of disabled people. Um, you know, you, you've got to always be trying to learn and develop and, you know, one of the things that got me to the Lords is my work in sport. Um, and, you know, so at the moment I'm chair of Yorkshire Cricket, which is right at the, the tough end. You're acting chair, aren't you? Yeah, I'm about to hand over. I gather, yeah. Um, but, you know, so for me sitting on the outside talking about governance and safeguarding, actually to be in the middle of it doing it is also really important because I learned from that to go back into the chamber. So, you know, when we're talking about how you put safeguarding policies in place. You're not talking about something, you know, that I've read in a book. It's because I've done it. So, mm. you know, when I went into the Lords, I was told very clearly, you know, number one, it's a work, it's a job. And number two, whatever got you there, you have to remain an expert in it. You know, so that you're talking That's about... That's why I never speak. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I'm an expert, but I, do, I have lots of people on the outside who help me, which is yeah. amazing. On the subject of Yorkshire cricket was is very topical because we've, had a marvellous game up in Headingley. It seemed to be a sort of times a travesty of injustice, the whole inquiry, and a rather bull in the china shop stuff uh, to the outside observer and sort of um, 
rather overreaction by various bodies, I mean, to the outside person looking in. What, what's your take on it in terms of... Uh, just a fundamental lack of process. And then each stage not necessarily be han- being handled terribly well. And then everything starts spinning out of control. So I applied to join the board last year um, and I've worked in sport a long time. I had a really good idea of what I was going into. Um, and it's been really hard. You know, it's sometimes in sport, uh, people who work in it forget that it's also a business. And, you know, you've got to have a lot of things in place. So for me, what we're doing is we're putting a lot of process in place. So if there is an issue, you can raise it and something happens and, and it gets dealt with in, in the right way. Uh, so we're, we're putting a lot of process in place because actually what you want is is people to play cricket, have a great time doing it. You know, everyone says to me, you know, for a strong England, we need a strong Yorkshire, uh, mostly because they know quite a lot of our good players. <laughs> they certainly are. <laughs> Which is great. Um, but, you know, it's... What I really want to do is is work to develop the women's game. So my and will age, you stay on the board or will you? No, I'm staying on the board. Um, absolutely. Um, you know, my age, girls weren't allowed to play cricket because we were considered too delicate. You know, my mother played. You know, oh, I see. She's 93 now. Oh, no, good she... for her. Probably had to have quite a lot of resilience. Uh, I don't think she'd ever say that, but she, you know, she played for a better county, Lancashire, of course. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um. I'm going to leave that one. <laughs> So that that's been a really interesting sort of almost clearing up the mess that that, that happened beforehand. Uh, what we didn't talk about was the marathon, which has mm. been very key to you know your your role in the marathon, which now is this sort of huge celebration of sport where you, you won it I think six times. Rather embarrassing. You must be so embarrassed doing that. No, <laughs> <laughs> I mean it was one of the. Th- I watched it uh, on TV when I in the early eighties, and I watched a Welsh athlete called Chris Hallam win the wheelchair race, and said to my mum. I'm going to do the marathon one day. And I think six years later, I was on the start line. And then a couple of years after that, I won it. But um, yeah, again, you know, just even the music, you know, when they start playing the music and the lead up to it, it kind of gets to me because it was such a big part of my career. And I did lots of, I did, I don't know, 85 marathons around the world. Got a few, you know, few podiums in, in other places. Didn't, uh, didn't win any other big city marathons. Uh, Where was your favourite? <sighs> There was a race in Switzerland called Lake Sempak Marathon, which is basically two times around Lake Sempak, which is about 20k from Lucerne, and a wheelchair-only race. And that was by my far the favourite. And I came second a couple of times and third a couple of times. And uh, but uh, must be quite a stampede, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's when you're having a good day, the marathon is unbelievable because you know you you're trying to break the pack up and you're, you know, it's it, again like cycling. You're, you're doing lots of different things and you work together with some people and not with others. And brilliant. When you're having a bad day where you usually figure out a mile in, it is a really long, miserable way to go. So, you know, and yeah, it, it's one or the other. For me, it was never much in between. No, I feel exhausted just thinking about it. I mean, you, you've, you've done some really um, different things. I mean, you, you're trustee of the Churchill Memorial Trust. Mm. I chaired the other Churchill organisation, but was involved with the Memorial Trust. Uh, you were on the BBC board, mm. seventeen to twenty-one, and you're chair of the trustees of the Duke of Edinburgh uh, scheme, which is amazing. Mm. I love it, DV. Um, I never did it. My sister did, and it was life changing for her. My daughter did it, and over the years, I presented some gold awards, and you saw what it did for young people. 
so I joined the board and then in 2020 I, I became chair and it's it's about changing young people's lives so you know our ambition in the next five years we're going to be in 50 prisons um and we're already in a number of young offenders institutes you know you go into these places you've got a group of young men who can't read can't write no you know have, have had a really poor start life and, and and people have made bad choices but but actually the award is part of putting them back together and um my my daughter i'd have to say she wasn't massively keen to do a gold award <laughs> and i'd said to her if you don't do it you'll be the only child of a sitting trustee in you know 60 odd years to not do it do you want to let prince philip down <laughs> and um so she did it and at the end she said was that true I, went, I have no idea oh, you must She'd be been... a, you must be a tyrant of a mother <laughs> <laughs> but she now recognizes that it was really good for her and is she a, a great athlete because ian your husband was it was a disabled athlete too wasn't he yeah so ian was a cyclist broke his back cycling couldn't ride a bike anymore so came into wheelchair racing um caris kayaks but i think that's to rebel against us because i really don't like water uh, open water. I don't like moving water. I don't like cold water. So we will never get in a boat. We will never try it. <laughs> I just have to it's sit on the getting away from my mother telling her about the Duke of Edinburgh. Yeah, it scheme. is. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's definitely rebellion that that's the sport she's picked. And where do you see the BBC going? You know, it's one of those things that I think because I've travelled a lot outside the UK, when you look at other public service broadcasters around the world, the BBC is amazing. It is. But um, there are lots of challenges. You know, it, it's we're not living in the same world as we were 10 years ago, let alone when it was created. And I think it's something that we should check and challenge, but it's something that also should be cherished. So, you know. It's, well, I think it's you're big... alluding to the soft power that it has through BBC uh, World Service and through, obviously, its educational side and things like that. And, and... and when you go around the world, the number of people who listen to the World Service, yeah. who at times of crisis put the BBC on, to you know, because of the reporting, you know, at its best, it's incredible. But some really big challenges, you know, because, you know, in terms of the internet, um, you know, YouTube is a, for young people, is a massive threat because people consume the news and uh, programs in a way they didn't. You know, when I was growing up, there were three channels. Um, so it, it's got to be fleeter for in terms of, I don't want to lose the best of the BBC. No, no it's a great institution and, and interesting with that. And then UNICEF, mm. which you're very active with. Yeah, so for that, I get to travel and see different projects around the world. And um, Where were you recently? Um, so the last visit I went on was in Jordan. Um, and, you know, going to see sports projects in other countries just, again, helps with everything that I do back here. You know, some great ideas, great projects in terms of just learning from how you connect locally. So, um, yeah, that's that's always um, very levelling when you go and see what happens in a and how women and how disabled people are treated in other countries, mm. I think, is really helpful. And disabled um, point, do you think you're going to turn around and say, tick, job done, if ever? Not yet, not close. Um, so the work I do on trains, the... Disability Discrimination Act promised that trains would be step free by January the 1st, 2020. Uh, the date now is 2070. So not in my lifetime. So uh, there's still quite a bit for me to do. The new trains must surely have these step frees. <laughs> no. God. 
I know. They're not listening <laughs> they just, to you. They're not listening. <laughs> no, but you know, you've got to keep trying them. Yeah. Um, and where where else are you where what else is in your target site? Um so it's still there's so much more we should be doing on physical activity, um, in terms of getting a fit and healthy nation. So the elite sports sort of looks after itself. Um, but but I'm doing a lot of work around healthy nation, and I think that's really important for us. Does but does the elite sport look after itself? I mean, there, you hear often of big funding problems for athletics, mm. particularly at the moment, and I'm sure there's big funding problems for disabled athletics too. Mm. Uh, is that the case, or? Oh, it is, and you know the amount of external money that's coming into elite sport has changed. You know. In the lead up to 2012, there was a lot of sponsors wanted to sponsor governing bodies. You know, a lot of that slipped away. There, there are lots of challenges, but if we don't have a diverse group of young people playing sport, then uh, and and we make that pathway to transition into elite sport better, you know, we're not going to have the best athletes having the chance of competing. We'll still do all right, but we won't have, you know, the best. So for me, it's having that impact on the physical activity um, and the getting into pathway that that makes a real difference. And of course, it helps for an integrated Britain too, which is partly what is happening. You're doing up in Yorkshire, presumably. Yeah, and you know, sport is. If we look, you know, we've had huge success with Olympic sports, you know, over the years since uh, Atlanta. But the reality is, a lot of children come from independent schools. Um, that's not just because of money; it's because of um, trained PE teachers at prep school level. There's lots of things that that contribute to that. Um, we kind of joke we're very good at sports where we sit down, you know, um, sailing, cycling, you know, rowing. Um, and actually, it's just about broadening that out. Um, you know, boxing, athletics have generally been a bit better at being open to everybody. So, you know, I think every sport needs to look at itself and, and ask itself, is it being as inclusive as it can be? Because if you're inclusive, you've got more chance of getting better athletes through to, to elite level. Mm. Well, Tony Gray, it's been fantastic talking to you and a real pleasure. And I think the House of Lords is incredibly lucky to have you <laughs> speaking on these issues. Not that we always agree on everything, but thank you very much indeed. Thank you.